0: You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. How many of you know about Palantir? Raise your hand if you Oh, a lot. Okay, let's see if you know all of these facts. Palantir Technologies is an enterprise software company that tackles the world's most challenging problems. Founded in 2004, it now has approximately 1,000 employees, and it takes up a healthy chunk of downtown Palo Alto. I'm wondering what you guys do for the local food economy. It's probably pretty good, right, Stefan? Palantir creates a tremendous impact in the government, health, and nonprofit worlds. One, Palantir has rescued hundreds of women and children from sex trafficking and other exploitive networks. Two, Palantir protects our military, both in daily combat operations and in what is also known as Special Ops. Three, Palantir helps contain E. coli outbreaks through its work with the Center for Disease Control, or CDC. Four, immediately after disasters, Palantir sends in its engineers to direct real-time relief efforts. Most recently, Palantir organized the efforts of hundreds of volunteers responding to Hurricane Sandy victims. Any of you have relatives who were hit by Hurricane Sandy? A few. Okay. Uh, Stephen Cohen co-founded Palantir in 2004. He currently serves as an executive vice president and he's one of the four people on the board of directors. In the early days, he developed and sold Palantir's government (coughs) software product. But these days, he focuses on Palantir's internal scaling, training Palantir's managers and interviewing about 50 people a week. He has conducted roughly 4,500 interviews since the founding of Palantir. Stefan, we're so glad. Oh, oh, before, before uh, just add one small thing before founding Palantir, we also are very grateful to know that um, you are a graduate of Stanford uh, Computer Science Program, and we're really happy to have you back. Let's welcome Stefan Cohen. Thank
1: you. So uh, I was thinking it would be fun to, to come here, come back to Stanford, uh, my, my alma mater, and just tell a few of the stories, um, basically the path that, uh, that led from really where you all are sitting right now to the, the stage up here and Palantir and all the, uh, the other things that have happened in the last eight years. So uh, firstly, how many grad students do we have in the room? Okay. And then how many undergrads all right, and of the undergrads how many uh how many slee kids do we have in here? <laughs> do we have any slee kids okay that's that's actually kind of funny unto itself because I was going to start the story with the story of slee my uh, my beginning i, I was a slee kid uh, my my beginning here at Stanford um, it's actually pretty funny there there aren't aren't too many in here so I was fortunate enough to um, grow up around here in Fremont, and during high school, uh, I don't want to date myself here too much, but I, uh, I worked on an online gradebook software company um, during the first dot-com bubble, and so in those kind of uh, formative adolescent years, was able to jump outside of the kind of narrow high school bubble and see a bit about how the world worked in the world of entrepreneurship. You can probably uh, take a few guesses at how much I knew about what I was doing, that I was attacking K-12 when still being in K-12. and Education isn't exactly the most lucrative market, um, although it's gotten a lot better since then. But it was very helpful to get to kind of see things from an outside perspective, see what actually worked, what didn't work. Uh, I snuck in here, went to a few lectures at Stanford. Basis had a business plan competition. I jumped into that and... Um, uh, i don't think I ever won a single business plan competition. <laughs> I learned I learned business plans are not my forte. But I also learned that Stanford had the most intense concentration of traditional talent i'd ever seen anywhere. and there's this special energy, this aliveness to everyone here, and this this openness towards the world that I was so excited about being a part of. And my number one uh, like the consuming desire was to take the talent here and to just work on changing the world, on transforming things. And so, you know, those, those first few weeks, freshman year, always daunting. Show up there in the sleigh dorms in uh, Florence Moore. It uh, was in Faison. And uh, you talk to the kids, and they're just as brilliant as you imagined. And the Traditional talent is just overwhelming how much is there. But the, uh, I, I, had, I had this nagging feeling um, Whereas the traditional IQ was incredibly high and incredibly concentrated, what I was really looking for was this type of worldly wisdom about how to take the world of ideas and actually connect it you know, to the real world, to actually generate an impact with all of this. And this is what draws so many of us here to Stanford in the first place. And I was struck by uh, how little of that knowledge kind of existed within the institutions. You know, I've learned since then that so much of entrepreneurship simply can't be taught. We, we have formats like this, and I think they're fantastic for sharing the little bit that can be shared. Um, So much of it just has to be learned through experience. But this kind of recognition that there is a difference between traditional IQ and the uh, kind of entrepreneurial disruptive force, and that that latter category needs to be learned outside the traditional bounds of institutions like Stanford, it was a very important starting point for just how I went about doing things here and hopefully... um, Hopefully that, that may help inform how, uh, how you do some of this stuff. So kind of recognizing there was no single linear path that would lead to an entrepreneurial outcome, I immediately tried to jump to non-linear paths, uh, which for me meant working on products. I love working on products. Of course, since my last one was a to K-12 grade book, I don't exactly know if my choice of product at this age was particularly great, um, but I had some fun ones in the, those opening years. I, uh, this was the beginning of wireless internet taking over. Everyone had these routers. No one had any idea where to place them. So I had this idea that I would hack the network card in my laptop and I got this old crusty cart from my house in Fremont. Uh, I, got, I, I played on the, the varsity tennis team in high school and I got an old tennis container and a tennis ball put a laser mouse on top of it so I could track 2D coordinates with this cart, and then I hacked into the driver in this laptop so I could pull out the signal strength readouts and effectively build a 2D topological model of the signal strength in a room like this. Now, what did this actually uh, amount to? Well, I was this freshman a few months into Stanford, and I've got this cart that's roughly sized like this, and I'm walking all around Treseter and everywhere else uh, with this tennis ball duct tape uh, contraption in rows, probably looking like a crazy person, just uh, back and forth mapping out all this, uh, this signal. Um, obviously, that idea didn't exactly evolve into Palantir, um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, uh, you know. After that, I started working on uh, an augmented reality toolkit. Um, it was uh, actually part of my senior project work, and what it did was it would take uh, webcams. And it would find these um, these uh, elements in a scene and basically project a 3D matrix onto that so it could determine the 3D coordinates of what it was seeing. Uh, anyways, you could rig this thing up to build a 3D mouse. so I wrote a 3D mouse, I connected it to Quake 2, which was just recently open sourced. and uh, there you, there you have it. you know you have uh, this this new way of interacting with video games, with your computer. You can just move around and move your hands to to do things, kind of Minority Report-ish and I figured that this could be next big thing. And I talked to a a good venture capitalist friend of mine, uh, Ashmeet Sadana who I think now is a partner at Foundation Capital and he said, Stefan, it's a great idea but it can't impact the real world. The entrenched players in this market, these console manufacturers, they're the ones who control the distribution and because of this uh, essential feature of the marketplace, it might be a good product, it might be a good idea, but it probably won't be a reality. And so, of course, this like, really bummed me out. <laughs> this, is not, this is not what you want to hear here, and uh, any entrepreneur has plenty of stories like this where they, they get the bad news. But sure enough, years later, how many of you, you all have used a Kinect before? Right? You've probably played with PlayStation 3's variant of it. You know, We got that exact same technology, and sure enough, it came from the console manufacturers who, um, who controlled most of it. So he was right, but my, uh, the story I'm trying to paint here is one of working outside the traditional bounds of the institution here at Stanford while still leveraging um, the resources that were available and uh, still longing to find the way of connecting that world of ideas and products to the actual real world. Uh, the, the next kind of story in this adventure was uh, doing research with Andrew Ng, jumping in and learning as much about AI as possible. How many computer scientists in the room? Could you raise your hands? So what is this like, 15% maybe 10%? So the computer scientists here can particularly appreciate this. You know, I grew up watching Star Trek Next Generation, got Commander data, we have artificial intelligence in the ship's computer, it's, it's everywhere. And it's um, this, this incredibly powerful idea that computers will eventually catch up with generalized human intelligence. And so uh, as a computer scientist, when you first start learning about modern AI, statistical machine learning, at least for me, the very first thing you notice is this stuff is very, very hard. <laughs> Anyone who's taken CS229 uh, knows, knows that feeling in particular. Um, Andrew Ng is the best teacher for it. Highly recommend doing anything you can with that guy. Uh, he's, he's great. And uh, as, I, as I learned AI, as I tried to mine that treasure chest to find something, an idea so powerful that it could punctuate from that world and transcend into to ours and have a, have a big impact. Um, I, uh, I had the same kind of nagging sensation I had that freshman year in SLEE that these kids, despite being really smart, they there's, there's something that may be missing. And with the AI research, I think modern artificial intelligence is... Uh, It it has these brilliant, elegant models, uh, these kind of topological visual uh, analogy models for how to do classification, how to divide up problems. But they're incredibly quantitative and they tend to deal with problems that have a very well-defined structure. And there are some very clever algorithms and there's been a lot of clever uh, algorithmic breakthroughs I think in the last 15 years. But uh, the nagging sensation that I ultimately couldn't kick is that in the final analysis, AI is probably more A than it is I. It's, it's, a, it's a little more artificial than it is, uh, the, the problems are particularly artificial and the solutions are not quite exactly uh, what I would call intelligent. They tend to be a little more, um, a little more linear. They, they at least don't analogize to generalized intelligence in the way that one would hope. Uh, so once again, frustration. It didn't, it didn't lead where I was uh, hoping it would. But I decided to switch my game up a bit. I'd been trying to find brilliant ideas and then find people at Stanford to help work on them with me, and I decided to invert the model and try to find the brilliant people uh, to work with and see what ideas they had. And so I went around and asked all my friends um, who were the most brilliant people they knew and tried to meet them and ask them the same question and followed the trail of brilliant people. And there were a lot of... Uh, A lot of people pointing at this guy, uh, Peter Thiel, as the smartest person they knew. He he seemed to be at the top of the list. Uh, And so, made it my goal to find this guy and talk to him and see what could get done there. One of my good friends, Joe Lonsdale, who I think just did an interview in The Daily, if uh, any of you saw it, he ended up, um, we ended up co-founding Palantir together, along with some other folks as well. But he was working with Peter at Clarium. Clarium was uh, Peter's or is Peter's global macro hedge fund. Uh, he put it together right after he sold PayPal. Peter was uh, one of the founders and the CEO of PayPal before it was bought by eBay. And uh, sure enough, you know, Peter was undoubtedly and still is the highest IQ guy I've ever met in my life. He's, he's incredibly brilliant. Everyone was right. Uh, but the thing that was striking, this is, this is back in 2003. Uh, the PayPal mafia still hadn't started too many of its companies. I mean, the PayPal mafia as a term, wasn't even that well known at the time. And th- this whole network, they all had this energy and they were all putting together the wisdom of how to actually transcend that world of ideas and punctuate the actual world. And this wisdom was being put together in ad hoc fashion. It's been formalized now more through these talks. You can listen to Max. You can listen to all of these guys talk about their experiences and you can learn a bit about that kind of grab bag of tricks. But they were focused on the same problem and they recognized it as the problem it is. And I think, uh, I think you can define the smartest, um, you could call it traditional or standard IQ it's defined by what I would call uh, competence, a clarity, and then a gracefulness in the execution when given a really tough problem. Uh, Whereas entrepreneurial talent or entrepreneurial potential, it's almost always defined by being able to summon this incredible interpersonal intensity and commitment to work on really hard problems for sometimes sustained amounts of time. And so when you see someone demonstrating that, that's when you say that's going to be a good co-founder. And if they're brilliant too, well then, hey, you're really lucky, right? You definitely want to work with that person. Um, and so next thing I knew, I was uh, interning at Clarium 40 hours a week. I was trying to graduate early, which, I don't know, by some uh, some stroke of luck, I actually managed to, uh, to finish a few quarters early here. And uh, I was, so I'm, I'm doing this 40-hour job, 20 units of CS, uh, and, you know, <laughs> Uh, Everything else that we all do here at Stanford as undergrads. And the only way to make it work, uh, quite frankly, was to get in this habit of just blitzing three days in a row. So for one quarter, that last quarter at Stanford, with the exception of the first and uh, the last week of the quarter, Tuesday through Thursday, I just wouldn't sleep. I would literally just work. I mean, it was wild. And I couldn't even imagine doing it now. I mean, now if I don't get uh, my eight hours of sleep, I'm quite a grumpy guy. (laughs) <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, anyways, these these Tuesdays through Thursdays, I would just, you know, around 2 or 3 in the morning, go down El Camino to uh, the Denny's. It's no longer there. Uh, it's now a Suhong. But I would go to that Denny's, and I would, uh, you know, say hi to Vladimir. He was the late night waiter. We became best friends. <laughs> Embarrassingly... Uh, got to know each other so well that he would just let me go behind the, uh, the kitchen to the back and get the food myself, uh, which is quite something. Um, but honestly, it felt natural at the time. It didn't even feel like that much of a push. It, just, it felt like what needed to get done. And so I, I think it's critical while you're here, if you find opportunities to engage, if you feel a resonance with an idea or a project or a set of people, just run with that. This, this stuff is so much of... Um, opening your mind and you know, your heart to the possibilities of doing it, of being that engaged with an idea. And even if it doesn't work, then you just gain so much from that experience. But so this, this strategy of uh, focusing on finding the smartest people and surrounding yourself with them, I, I want to caveat it uh, with, with an important uh, footnote here. I don't think a people-first strategy in isolation uh, ever really works. I I don't think that's successful and one of the core reasons is that you want to surround yourself with brilliant people, but also people who are getting stuff done and doing interesting things. But in general, those people only got that way because uh, they love doing interesting things and they've learned from those experiences and they've changed them. So if you kind of do this like, if you take this pro-networking argument to an extreme of just trying to find the brilliant people, If you're lucky, you'll actually get in front of them, you'll talk to them, but when you're there, you're not going to have anything substantive to discuss. You're not going to be in the world of ideas the same way that you would be if you really cared about them and focused on the substance first. And so your best case scenario is kind of having a shallow interaction with them where nothing, um, nothing truly substantive can come about from it. But if on the other hand, you care and you're deeply passionate about these ideas, about the products, about the things that can change the world, and then you also focus on finding the brilliant people who want to work in those spheres. I think this is really the right recipe. And um, this was essentially the recipe that led to, uh, led to the early days of Palantir. So when Peter finally uh, sat down and I guess this was like midway in 2004 and said, uh, I've got this idea, Stefan. Let's take some of the ideas from the PayPal anti Fraud platform and let's try to generalize them to solve the country's counterterrorism problem. And uh, we'll start by selling it directly to the US government. And while we're at it, let's solve the generalized uh, enterprise information management platforms that are out there. Let's, let's help big enterprises use the Silicon Valley approach to understanding their data. Um, in this kind of context of being around these, these brilliant folks, but also deeply caring for the ideas and the products, this was, this was obviously a winner. This was what I had been looking for that, that whole time at Stanford. And so it was always right next to the Stanford institution, but never quite linearly connected. Um, yeah. And so away we went. Away we went. Uh, those staying up you know, Tuesday through Thursday... Uh, pushing and pushing, I went from my last CS final, which I totally bombed. I think I got a C-minus or something for the first time in that class. Uh, I went from that last final to a little office, uh, 3000 Sandhill, where Peter had actually started PayPal. And that was the first day of anyone working full-time on Palantir. Um, we had very little time. Only about eight weeks before a killer meeting with a guy named Gilman Louie, who was uh, at the time the president of IncuTel. Uh, Incutel, for those who haven't heard of it, is um, the intelligence community's venture capital fund. And they, they do a great job opening doors for companies in Silicon Valley and elsewhere that uh, want to work on the US government's challenges. So we have this, this meeting. It's only two months away. And uh, you know, we don't exactly have too much product at the time. So it was prototype crunch time, about eight weeks through together, basic prototype. I'd have to say uh, CS people in the room can understand this. It would be a little admittedly, uh, it was a little admittedly light on the back-end elements, the initial prototype, a little more focused on the lights and the fireworks and the, the front-end, but it, uh, it was a success and Gilman, um, Gilman liked it and he began to open the doors for us uh, in the U.S. government. But before he left that meeting, he said the, the most funny thing which was, if you guys can't help us fix our uh, counterterrorism problem, you've got a bright future in video games. <laughs> so I took that as a ringing endorsement. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'll, I'll share a few funny stories from those times, a few illuminating ones. Um, you know, there, there we were crunching away and we were... Um, Every, every other week basically flying out to Washington, D.C., trying to meet with folks inside, uh, inside the government, get as close to our potential customers as possible, and just showing them uh, our platform, showing them the prototype and asking them, you know, what do you want, what do you need? But the real information uh, came from looking at the points of resonance with the platform, getting them in front of it and seeing what they used, what did they like, what were their eyes attracted to, what was, what was actually going on. Um, where were the real uh, opportunities to, to add value there? Um, and so uh, we, would, we would go out there, we would gather this feedback and um, we would then uh, drink a whole bunch of these things and crunch and get it integrated and do it again. And I, I, the, one, of the, one of the kind of uh, points that I think demarcated an element of success was when my government sponsor, uh, was introducing me at one of these meetings and he said, everyone, I want to introduce you uh, to Mr. Two Weeks. He can, he can build anything you ever want in two weeks. So ask away. Um, and uh, yeah, needless to say, again, it's another one of those, that's what you want to hear. It's, it's uh, what Peter would say is the right kind of problems to have. Uh, but it was, it was definitely, uh, definitely increased my Red Bull consumption. <laughs> um, and so, in this process of fleshing out the product and finding the exact market fit, finding, finding exactly how these pieces fit together to fulfill that vision that Peter had originally outlined, um, you know, there's, there's, no, there's, there's not really any uh, easy path through and there's not really any linear path through. It's the same thing where you throw the entrepreneurial intensity at it and then you kind of see what sticks. But you can look, and I think it's very important to look for uh, the demarcation points that actually indicate you are succeeding. And so the final demarcation point where I would say Palantir went from more of a provisional idea to um, a full conviction for me personally, when I knew that we really had an opportunity to change things and impact the world. It was uh, one of these meetings, uh, You know, get the Mr. Two-Week introduction, and it was a conference room with maybe 30 people in it. And uh, these are all government folks, all in suits. Government meetings are not, uh, not terribly exciting. Um, they, they tend to go at quite a slow pace. Uh, but this one, this one was more exciting. People were, were energetic and they were really excited with what we had and they could see the disruption. At the end, there was a moment where uh, you know, the meeting was breaking, everyone was walking away. And out of the corner of my eye, I see at the other end of the room two, um, two senior government executives you know fully in their suits and whatnot grown grown men who've been uh, in government service for over 20 years stand up and give each other high fives so when your government guys are doing the high fives with each other saying to themselves like how this is going to change things you know that's that's when you've done it that's when and, and I mean not done it but you're in the position to do it that's when I knew that if we could just follow through with this, if we could make it work, we could really, really change things. And that, that moment of founder conviction, um, that, that, I, that I, it, it was a very important moment. Uh, roughly around that time too our the conceptual vision for the product stabilized. And uh, those are the moments where you start to gain clarity on kind of what the heart and soul is of what you're doing. And for Palantir, what what the fundamental aspiration of the platform um, is, it's basically to enable humans to perform the analytical reasoning that for whatever reason machines can't seem to replicate. There's a certain form, I mean, we could say uh, the, the kind of simplistic version of this is to enable the ideal human computer symbiosis. But I think that doesn't quite do justice to some of the more subtle aspects of this, the, the idea here, which is, Firstly, um, accepting as computer scientists and engineers and just people who are in the technology business that there's actually a lot computers can't do. Uh, there, it could be for practical empirical reasons. It could be for theoretical reasons. I, I find the theoretical possibilities quite interesting themselves. But accepting that there's these, these realms of uh, reasoning that computers are particularly bad at without human help, like, for instance, figuring out what the right framing is for a problem. You can't even really describe a problem to a computer without a framing on it that pre-exists. So you certainly can't hope for the computer just to kind of tell you, hey, here's the right framing. Um, Computers are very bad at finding patterns in data unless there's an incredibly uh, dictionary-long instance of a very well-constrained, well-understood problem. Then it can begin to find certain patterns. And for the vast majority of human analytical problems, this is just not it. It's sparse, it's isolated, things are connected in ways we can, uh, we have a stronger intuition for than we have a rational reason. And so because of all these facts, uh, really the right kind of future economic relationship for man and machine is one that deeply respects the capabilities of what only man can do, or just at least for now what only man can do. And um, also, of course, you, know, you want this to be the computer scientists who are recognizing this so the machines can do the absolute best of what they can do, the algorithmic reasoning, right, the, um, the computational machinery that they, they uh, the computational processes that they can execute um, trillions of times faster than we can. And so this is, this is the Palantir idea, um, the ultimate Palantir aspiration. But I think that this idea is actually just one part of a much broader opportunity I wanted to talk about here before we open this thing up to questions. And that opportunity, well, I'll sketch an image. So take the entire domain of human economic activity, take all the things we do, all the things we want to do, all the things that, that make that up, and now draw a line that divides, on one hand, the precisely definable. And on the other hand, everything that's not quite that—all <laughs> the related phenomenon that, for whatever reason, can't quite be precisely pinned down. So you know, we can probably precisely pin down yes or no: Am I hungry? But we can't precisely pin down you know, how hungry am I? What does that feel like? We can assign a number. We can make an approximation. But that as a phenomenon is at best exactly that—an approximation. The fundamental fact of it is. It, Exist in something that's uh, much less precise, but just as real and just as tangible I think that that line that separates that precisely definable from that which is not this is basically the line where algorithms can uh, might my, 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 let me let me backtrack for a second. This may just be obvious from like a technology entrepreneur's standpoint, but but I'll say it verbatim. Uh, I really believe that with all the advances we've had in computing, computers will do all things computers can possibly do. So when it comes to, uh, if you accept the kind of the the extrapolation there, then the next question naturally becomes, well, what can computers do? (laughs) If the answer is everything, then we can expect computers to be coming and uh, taking away uh, a lot of what we do day to day. But I, I strongly believe it's just not. Actually, there's a lot that computers really can't do. And I, there's also, I'm very interested in the reasons why quantum computing. I hope we don't have any administrators in here, but I spent last quarter sneaking into the history corner Tuesdays and Thursdays auditing the quantum computing course that Stanford just started uh, teaching because it's, <laughs> it's deeply fascinating stuff and uh, potentially in quantum computing there are some answers to why classical computational algorithms might not be able to get certain human reasoning tasks done. But nonetheless, Recognizing the depth and the subtlety of the qualitative domain and recognizing it as disjoint and separate from the quantitative domain, this lets you start seeing problems a little differently. Uh, There's a lot of interest in Salesforce, other CRM products, a lot in web analytics. And these are all essentially domains where we are collecting, we're building a quantitative universe. I mean the space of all big data is one where we build a quantitative universe and then we study it. And one approach to this is to say, let's get as much data as possible and then let's develop the most sophisticated algorithms possible for finding patterns in the sea of quantitative, uh, quantitative data. But I, I ultimately don't believe that will be terribly successful. I think the much more important questions are, let's study the human aspects of this, the qualitative aspects of the problem. What are we trying to get done? What's actually happening? What are the subtle aspects of this process that when we uh, actually clarify, then we can actually learn that's where we want to collect the data. That's what we want to analyze. That's what we want to figure out. And through the study of the qualitative phenomenon that dovetails right next to this quantitative phenomenon in the actual universe, through, through this we can then optimize how we use our computers to uh, actually do what we want them to do. And this, this place, this is where I think we're going to see a lot of technology companies in the 21st century. I think this is much closer to the actual 21st century big data analysis problem. At least, much more so than getting uh, more and more fancy algorithms to kind of do the same problems we've already seen. So, yeah, with that, I will turn it over to you all for some questions. Oh, yeah, yeah. How does
0: this insight of use apply to natural language? The uh, natural language processing by
1: a computer. How, how does this perspective shine on that? Oh, it's, yeah, so the question is how uh, does this perspective kind of shine on the natural language processing problem? That's um, yeah, a great question. So the I mean immediate thing is that uh, you probably don't want NLP, uh, the stuff you do like good NLP will probably be a lot like Google where it's disconnected from um, the intentional aspect, the actual direct value creation aspect that, uh, you know, us humans are actually focused on. It will probably remain more of a tool than um, kind of a full turnkey technique unless bullish on translation technology that can capture all the subtlety and complexity of grammatical constructs and believe that, that all that will kind of converge at this natural translation of meaning than more of kind of the brute force stuff. Like, we'll do a lot of synonyms for some phrases and then hopefully the other smart human mind can put together the rest of the context. I think the latter is, is where we'll see most of the advances. But, um, but yeah, it's a question worth studying. So you said <clears throat> there was a line dividing the the domain of quantitative and qualitative things an algorithm can approach. Um, so does that intrinsically mean that the line itself, where you draw it, is a qualitative line? And if so, re- uh, redefining the qualitative problems to make them quantitative problems, can you apply an algorithm there to do that? Yeah, This is, this is a great question. And, and you've, uh, you've picked up on the subtlety in this, uh, this explanation that uh, at least the computer scientists in the rooms will probably find uh, very displeasing, uh, distasteful. I have a hard time with this idea unto itself because of exactly this. The problem with, uh, yeah, so the, the question was uh, kind of in a nutshell, the line that divides quantitative phenomenon from qualitative phenomenon, uh, must it be, doesn't it inherently have to be a qualitative line? And then uh, kind of further, is there a hope of developing algorithms that could perhaps figure out where this line is or maybe Pull some of the qualitative problems into the quantitative domain, uh, you know I think the line 's constantly moving, I think it 's fuzzy and whatnot. but the, the logical issue here that, that you're, you highlight is that uh, i 'm defining qualitative negatively, not positively, because if we could define qualitative phenomenon in a very tight, precise description, then of course we could just turn it into a quantitative phenomenon, and we could use a computer to solve it. And so it's one of these things that's, uh, you know, touches a bit. I warned you all, I was a SLEE kid here before I started talking, so you could hear a little bit of a SLEE, a little Mark Mancall Suzanne here. But um, uh, in essence, there are these kind of ambiguous aspects to a lot of these, these human phenomena that we experience all the time, including subjective phenomena, that uh, because they defy that precise logical description, we cannot turn them into algorithms. And, and I don't see that phenomenon is is being fundamentally tackleable um, by the by these quantitative approaches. But we can definitely chip away at it. So yeah, it's uh, the real invitation here with this with this framing is to look at problems, to dive into those qualitative subtle aspects. I was talking about going back and forth to DC, working on developing our product, and you know, there's all of these kind of product development formalisms, you know, agile, uh, you've guys have probably studied a whole bunch of them in some MS and E courses here. But the, the kind of framing I, I had just reflecting on that problem is there's a lot of really deep, subtle stuff. The users ultimately don't know what the product is they want. I mean, how could they? That's why you're the entrepreneur. If they knew, they would just make it themselves. They wouldn't, they wouldn't really need you. Um, and the, the only way you actually seek satisfactory answers to these questions of what's the right product, what's the right feature, is to look at these subtle aspects and study them in their own right and really appreciate the depth of them as a phenomenon unto themselves, not just kind of crassly reify them into a logical conception that resembles a much more quantitative-friendly uh, truism, if, if that makes sense. Who else? So there's a, there's a lot of literature recently about... Left brain and right brain, and who's gonna, who's, what's, what should you be teaching your children to do? Right. So should you be focused on quantitative, computational, or creativity? And not necessarily to say those are separate, but I'm using shorthand here. Yeah. So thinking about Palantir and what you do, if you're using computers to surface things for people so that people can do what they do best. Is there a best background for the person who's the who's the best user of your app? And what kind of background do they have? Yeah, that's a great question. That's a great question. Uh, to sum, sum it up, it's kind of reflecting on this qualitative quantitative thesis, what makes the best user for Palantir, how, how does that relate to it. Um, so the strongest, strongest users we've had, they actually have some of those entrepreneurial qualities. Uh, They really want to get things done. They want, in in their enterprise, they care deeply about solving the actual problem, uh, accomplishing the mission. So they have that entrepreneurial quality and they almost always categorically have another uh, feature, which is they're incredibly frustrated with with, uh, the organization's uh, kind of existing technology base, the inability to use all these wonderful quantitative tools to actually impact the mission. Um, So starting from that base of frustration uh, and deep concern for the mission, um, they, they see Palantir as a, a lens through which they can, they can better understand what's actually happening in their organization, what's happening in the ground reality. It's, at, at the end of the day, a lot of um, they're, they're, they're essentially respecting the deep and complex subtleties that are actually out there in the real world but then by appreciating those complexities able to map a lot of that information back into Palantir and then take advantage of our facilities to enable collective um, collective learning, collective pursuit of the, uh, the objective there. But so the, the relation, I, I don't know if I can break it down into uh, what classes people should take or what, what <laughs> folks should study, um, and I, I would, wouldn't dare jump into that debate anyways. But uh, in essence, I would say it's a deep appreciation for the complexities and subtleties of the ground reality, but then also just a deep desire to get leverage on it uh, collectively as an institution by pulling it into Palantir, being able to model it, in an, in an accurate way and something that does justice to those underlying truths.
0: So I have one question for Professor Kosnick and one for myself. So the first is is he told me that you interview up to 50 people a day right now. as you guys are expanding. A week. A week. A week. A week. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I have my poor
1: executive assistant here who can attest to the scheduling uh, nightmare. So in 50 people a week,
0: you talked about how it is really important to find those interesting people. Is What do you look for those interviews? Or how do you know that, yes, this is someone that's going to be able to work for me? That's the first question. The second question is, is you had all these different ideas that you're really passionate about. How do you find which ones to focus on, which ones to spend those times going you know, around with a cart at Stanford versus
1: other ideas? <laughs> I think you have to push a lot of carts around Stanford before you come up with the right idea. So uh, you know, definitely keep your eye on the zany person with something not working, they may be coming up with something that will work a, a bit later. Um, yeah, so the first question, what, what do we look for at Palantir? Um, what's going on in these interviews? Uh, so I, I like to try to meet every single person we hire, um, uh, perform the last last interview in in the palantir process, um, sometimes earlier interviews, and the there there's a lot of subtlety and complexity to it too. So I don't want to pretend to break it down into a basic rubric or anything else; it won't do justice to it. But the uh, the essential qualities that uh, we look for, even though they come in many different uh, various forms of different people and in different positions in the company, is the highest concentration of talent possible, that's that's number one. Number two, uh, long-term time horizons. And number three, um, what I like to call generative personalities. So uh, I'll break those down. Talent, as I was mentioning before, um, I think talent can really be identified by uh, firstly like a competence in solving whatever problems that, you know, talent is kind of directed at. Uh, And then, In the kind of competent uh, problem solving, in the the competent uh, execution looking for answers, there's actually just a deep gracefulness. So it's not just that the person knows how to answer the question, it's that they're even graceful in the process of answering it. This almost always means they add clarity, right? They they clarify the problem structure and the solution structure. So uh, I mean in kind of algorithms problems and whatnot, this is I, at least easier, I think, to identify because the problems are much more well-constrained, but they're very hard. <laughs> so the people who are able to uh, competently answer the question, clarify the basic construct of the problem, and then uh, even execute it in a graceful way, those are always the most talented. Uh, but it applies just as much so to domains outside of computer science, you know, in, um, in sales contexts, in engineering contexts, uh, you want a good salesperson to be able to clarify what the actual problem was, what was the tactical ground reality, how did they uh, proceed through it, how did they, what were they trying to accomplish and how did they do, what did they do right, what did they do wrong. This, this is what you want on the talent side. Uh, second thing is long-term time horizons. This one's critical and it's, it's another one that you know no one hit me over the head with when, when I was here. Uh, when you have that talent, it's very hard to create a, um, a substantial store of value unless you really want to work on the same thing, unless you really are willing to, to dedicate your talent to kind of focus it through some duration of time on a particular task. And what, uh, what we would find out there is it's in many ways kind of a uh, self-directed construct how you, how you look at the world, whether or not you focus on a handful of problems and derive your satisfaction from solving them longitudinally um, versus if you're kind of, always jumping from one thing to a next and you actually don't like to stick with anything for the long term. And this is, I I don't mean for this to suggest that like just do one thing and don't vary it. Like if anything, you just heard from this talk, I was doing 100 different things. Uh, But you you can see there's still some common threads to it. And that commonality, that's the long-term time piece. That's, That's kind of, that's what we look for at Palantir. And the third and last trait is the generative personality. And this is a, you can be very talented. You can have very long-term time horizons, but um, some of you might even have a professor that does this. Uh, they they apply the talent, in that long-term time horizon, to um, kind of showing why a lot of ideas don't work or why they're silly, and they're more hesitant to um, construct and be generative about proposing solutions. And uh, it's, it's very important, I think, in any startup to generate as much momentum as possible. And so that means you, you want to take that talent, that long-term time horizon and focus it in the most kind of creative, energetic way possible. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's what we look for. How do you, uh, how do you bridge that gap between the engineering gracefulness of
0: design and thinking and execution with the sales side and having clarity of of, uh, I guess, communication of the intent and purpose of
1: your solutions to a client base that's maybe not quite as aware as they could be? Uh, can you say that? Can you repeat that one more time? How do you bridge between engineering and sales so that you've got that gracefulness that comes out in your salespeople when they're speaking to your client base? Oh, yeah. No, this is, this is a, a very good question. Basically, how do we reconcile the engineer uh, and the engineering aspects with the sales aspects, especially hopefully in a way that uh, constitutes some gracefulness of execution. Um, And I I would say the first thing is we probably uh, focus a little less on the gracefulness of execution and more on this kind of substance forward um, perspective. We like to get the engineers and the people who actually add value as close to the front lines as possible, interacting with the clients. It's basically we want to share as much of our fundamental substance with each and every party we work with as possible. Probably have time for one more here. Yeah, Go ahead. Uh, I know you obviously mentioned
0: uh, your platforms being used by the US government uh, in terms of counterterrorism operations, but has Palantir considered marketing its product to other countries who are dealing with domestic armed conflict? Um, and if so, are there any sort of legal ramifications to that uh, in terms of, I guess, even in violating international law? I think if your technology is hiding counterterrorism operations in places,
1: being called into question, does Palantir have any culpability in that, or is that no? I mean, I, I don't. Uh, counterterrorism was uh, an initial um, impetus for the company, but it's a very, very small aspect of what we do these days. And uh, with the principal customer being the U.S. government, um, you know, there's, there's not, uh, there's not. Um, unlimited leeway in other parties you work with, and there's there's a lot of scrutiny. And we just, as founders, care about it very, very deeply. So um, although there's, there's always legal aspects, uh, you get good lawyers, they, they help you out with these things. What really matters more, I think, are the, the moral aspects, the mission and the purpose, and we focus the most on that and making sure that we're having a positive impact. All right, well... Uh, you know, I'm going to leave that time for you all to come up here and uh, address questions individually. But thank you very much.
0: Give one more hand around. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. Thank mm-hmm. you.